Oh, it's steep. Should I be in four wheel drive? Monica Gauci hesitated before she invited us up to her house to record this episode of the podcast. She said she was worried about the two of us, Megan and me, making the steep drive up the mountain where she and her husband, Gregor Mayale, live. But then, Gregor reassured her. They're from Montana, he said. They're used to worse than this. Of course, what we aren't used to is driving on the other side of the road. You're really going on to the left there. Monica wasn't exaggerating when she said she lives off the grid. Even Google Maps didn't know where she was. This is not it. This is so not it. We're definitely in the wrong place. (laughs) Oh, Megan. Still, Gregor was right. This was our kind of drive. Big trees lined the unmarked road, leading us further and further up. And where the road ended, Monica's driveway began. 2.8 kilometers of windy, steep, and exceedingly narrow road. At least there wasn't any snow. That was a plus, we joked. At last, we came around the final corner. And there, perched at the top of the mountain, was this charming, open-air house of cerulean blue, perfectly blending with the open sky all around. We stepped out of the car and were immediately greeted by two very excited dachshunds and Monica, dressed in a flowy white linen jumpsuit and a beautiful, welcoming smile. Immediately, we felt at home as Monica welcomed us inside towards the magnificent temple that sits at the center of their house. This is our temple. We sort of decided to build the house around a temple, seeing that's sort of the main focus of our lives. So, yeah. (laughs) A bit unusual. I think my family sort of were a bit like, (laughs) freak out. (laughs) Typical, Monica. (laughs) Being weird. (laughs) So, yeah. But come on through. You can enjoy the views. Like, why we live? Monica leads us through the kitchen and out the back door where the view is nothing short of breathtaking. The headland that you can see out there is actually Byron. Really? Yeah, so at night you see the the lighthouse flashing. That's Byron through there. So yeah, we sort of got a bit of a bird's eye view up here. This is beautiful. This is like heaven. Yeah, we're pretty spoiled. Welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast, where we explore yoga beyond the shapes we make on our mat by bringing you conversations with the people who interest and inspire us and bring this practice to life. I remember when Megan came home from her first three months studying with Dina Kingsburg here in Byron Bay last year. One of the first things she shared with me were the notes she took from the anatomy portion that was taught by Monica, who is, among many other things, a doctor of chiropractic. Neither one of us are particularly known for our keen interest in anatomy, but Monica had really caught Megan's attention. It was nice to have a long-time yoga practitioner 
someone who could apply the anatomy to practice, and as a woman. One hot topic Monica had touched upon were the physiological changes that happen in a woman's body during menopause. Relevant information not usually discussed in yoga classes, let alone anatomy lessons. Like Gregor used to say to me, what's the problem? You're only hot. I'd be like, I am not only hot. I am burning up from the inside. (laughs) This is not, I'm hot. I can handle being hot. I can't handle burning up on the inside. (laughs) As she poured our chai, Monica quickly launched into an impromptu lesson on collagen and the aging process. Some of that is hard to hear because just as we sat down, the cicadas emerged in an untimely burst of noisy chirping. So we'll just cut to the gist of it and then let Monica take it from there. So as we age, everything slows down. And if we don't appreciate that process, we're going to be like trying to go hill for leather. But actually, everything inside our body is slowing down and it can't keep up with the demand. So then the demand exceeds the resistance ability of the tissues. And so then we, we will injure ourselves more easily. And it can be a fine line, you know, to learn where your, bound, your new set boundaries are. It's not easy, but I think that one of the big things that happens, happened for me anyway in menopause was that it was like my intuition suddenly became stronger, more clear, and I find it easier to listen to myself, to the signals I get, And I'm learning to respond much more um, efficiently, let's say. So I've meditated since I was 20. And it was always a bit of a chore. It's like, really, this meditation? It's like, (laughs) it's such hard work. You get, like, you know, a few moments of clarity, peace of mind depth of connection and for that you know usually would take about an hour of sitting and you know and being um, practicing techniques and then after I turned 50 which I'd already been through menopause and finished my degree and so I could start to slow down it was like felt that I finally was reaping the fruits of my actions but I think some of it just coincided with age you know it was like okay 30 years of meditation practice and now finally I can sit and just drop in and really be there and I think that that's part of you know like the the older woman was always seen as the wise woman the crone you know that had all of the the wisdom and knowledge and I think that we we do have that as females because we are much more inward in many ways 
you know, even our genitalia are inward. And I know that um, the book Mulabanda, um, they actually talk about Mulabanda for females being the cervix instead of the pelvic floor. And I think that this is the, the nature of women is that we actually can tune in very easily and connect to source, not just to our own, not a mental thing, but a spirit, spiritual thing of the spirit. And I think that that really becomes much more accentuated after menopause. For some women, it's there strong when, even when they're young. But I know for me, you know, I've often been a late maturer. Um, I felt that that was one of the gifts of menopause. That, and I also find I used to listen to my mum and think, "Wow, she's so straightforward," and. I think I'm becoming more like that as I age because you just sort of realise that life's short. Th things, you especially, are finite and that you can't afford to just be half true to yourselves and therefore really half serve others. You know that it's now and that you need to actually seize the moment really and be who you are so yeah so much of what you're saying resonates mm. I have found the past few years I've gotten a little slower quieter mm. and, in, and enjoying that that kind of solitude that yes. inwardness yeah even moving to a place that you know being in Montana and where you are here, we it's yes, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Very solitary, quiet, yes. introspective. Yes, it does foster those things. And yet, luckily, we, we're fortunate enough to have that balance where we actually get to serve and be with other people as well. <laughs> so, yeah, because that's important as well, you know to be able to take what it is that we um, receive from our solitude and be able to give of that and share that. You've been doing that a lot this year. I've seen you, I've been reading your articles for years now. You have, you're, um, the way you describe various, you know, just the, the postural side, Mm. of the yoga um, from an anatomy standpoint but also from a functional you know in a functional way on your yes. blog it's been amazing yes. but you probably would admit it you this year though has been a big opening for you yeah well interestingly it was a change of subject <laughs> more than anything but it, it was actually born of all of those things that I was just saying that I felt that I had to speak out and speak what was really true for me because a lot of what I wrote was all stuff that um, that I've taught since 2000 and yet I was always very much in the closet about it because I didn't want to disrupt 
the more common traditional um, standpoint on the way that Ashtanga Vinyasa was being taught. But now I just have so much more confidence and conviction about what I do and why I do it. I'm not doing it out of any disrespect to the tradition. I'm doing it out of respect for my fellow yogis because I have practiced for long enough and I have taught for long enough to see the results of what happens and to have an embodied experience of the fact that we all need to take responsibility for our own practices and our bodies and learn to listen and the ultimate to respond to what it is that we're experiencing to be true to ourselves to be able to be honest with where we are day to day and that changes it changes day to day it changes month to month especially as females it changes um, over your lifetime you know whether you're pregnant whether you're um, injured whether you're just flying high whether you've been sick or are sick there's so many different things and really what would we be practicing if we insisted that we had to be able to do the same thing every day it's so interesting right because even when I said I slowed down in my own practice and in my life, mm. I feel stronger now. So it's almost like I circled around. I have a different mm. strength, a different vitality that's different than it was in my 40s. But as I enter my 50s, it's I'm experiencing myself in a different way. So mm. I think I thought it was all like this slope, you know, that bell curve, right? You kind of go up, 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 and then down, down, down. <laughs> so I thought when I got, when I hit the wall, I thought, okay, here we go. We're going, like, I'm going to go down, down the mountain. Down. I'm going down the mountain. <laughs> but, but it's more like, um, you know, a spiraling kind of. It's yeah. different. And I think if you can respond to your body, and do what you need to do. I actually think in some ways you can remain, you can maintain your strength. Whereas if you ignore, you know, and this is what ignorance is to ignore, if you ignore your body and insist that you have to do things a, a certain way, what's going to happen is that you're going to injure yourself. It's you know, almost written on the wall if you, you know, no matter what age you are, actually. But if you, and then if you injure yourself, you're going you're gonna to end up not being able to even do much. And that means you're actually going to get weaker and more frustrated and unhappy. And so it's a downward spiral then. Then you are going down the mountain. And if you live here, it's going to be a fast trip down the mountain. (laughs) A dangerous one, too. (laughs) Absolutely. In fact, you won't survive if you go down this mountain. It's kind of the difference between practicing towards conformity, right? There's There's an element of that, like you have to do it the way everyone has done it and that that's what you're kind of referring to with the traditional yeah. sense in some way yes it's a difficult subject and this is one of the reasons why i actually stopped writing as many anatomy 
functional blogs is because it's so hard to be complete within one blog because your body isn't segmented into what your glutes are doing compared to what something else in your body is doing you know so it's like and this is similar like you can't I th- the Ashtanga system the Ashtanga Vinyasa system is very intelligent I think it's the best system as far as it has at least it has the very important fundamentals and you can never be established well enough in those that's something I think that we all at every stage can work on and then it's not perfect physically but it's pretty good you know you tell me how many vinyasa flow classes out there are perfectly balanced yeah you know so it's a pretty good start and it's a good it's a good measure stick for people to start with we have always almost always modified it to make it accessible not to water it down but just to make it accessible so that and to also keep people safe in that progression so you know one of the big things that we did when we taught our beginners was that we took out all the half lotuses but we put in more hip openers because what's a common thing that happens with a lot of ashtanga yogis is that they hurt their knees in an attempt to be able to do a half lotus well knees are very vulnerable hips are pretty tough so you end up stressing out your knees and your hips going yeah no problem here you know it much more resilient to stress because it can do a full range of movement you know it's a ball and socket joint whereas that hip you know i say to people knees are like people that you've hurt them once and they never quite forgive you always hold a grudge knees can be like that if you injure your knees so it's a sad thing and I've seen many people drop out of the practice because they hurt their knees so we would take the half lotuses out give them hip opening and when their hips were open put it in and then still try to stick to the sequence but just making it let's face it it was designed for people who sat on the floor and had open hips not for westerners who don't usually naturally have open hips So because we do have respect for um, just the, we do have respect for the tradition. However, you can't try to force people into a box that they don't fit into. You know, you need to respect the person that's in front of you. Where do you think that comes from? Because what you're saying is not much different than nearly every teacher I've ever interviewed. Okay. I mean, you know, Eddie Stern was just on last month and he was saying he compared it to Chipotle. Do you have Chipotles here? Mm, No. no. Think of like a burrito place, right? (laughs) And so you have your burrito and, but if you want to substitute guacamole for sour cream because you can't have sour cream, you wouldn't call it (laughs) 
a modified burrito, it would just be, that's one of your options. It's yes. an option. And so yes. he, everybody describes it a little differently, mm. but everybody's basically saying same, the same, same thing, thing, that it's still it's a burrito. And, and yet still... there is still often this perception that people feel that they have to do things a certain way. So am I just not talking to the people? Well, actually, that... <laughs> yeah, I don't, yeah, the, the people that are I don't know. Or is this maybe we do? Maybe, maybe everyone is slowly changing. Also, an option. I don't know. I don't know because I can't speak for anybody else. But I know that um, we designed a beginners course for Ashtanga for our students in in Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga. Um, not long after Gregor and I were actually together, so it was in the um, late nineties. And we've always taught it that way. Maybe it's an interpretation of the student and not actually where the, the teacher's really coming from. Because I just had somebody on the phone yesterday who had enrolled to do our training in Melbourne and said, oh, you know what? I actually don't think that I'm advanced enough in my asana and I don't... Um, like, I just... I don't know that, you know, I can actually commit to doing a six-day practice every week and la la la. And I said, for a start, we never judge people based on their ability in asana. So I think that this is the perception that people think that you have to be able to do all of those postures just because that's what comes next. I mean, I know when I used to go to Mysore, that you were stopped at the posture that you couldn't do. There weren't options. It was that or nothing. So, and I, you know, I unfortunately had some some friends who was who were sharing a house with me, and in their attempts to, with a little bit of help in adjustments to do a half lotus, they busted their knees and they stopped doing Ashtanga yoga because of that. Because they I would have too. Like, yeah, I would have too. So, I don't know where it comes from, but it certainly was there, and I think that it's changing, which is a wonderful thing, because it needs to change. I do think it's changing. But on the other hand, as I'm sitting, I ask the question, I can remember women coming to me, and it's particularly women, and that's probably because that's my audience oftentimes when I go, when I travel around, it's women. And I can think of one woman in particular. She was in her early 60s, and she had been practicing for 20 years, almost 20 years, two decades. Couldn't stand up from the back bend. Mm -hmm. And so she'd been practicing primary series and could not, and I wanted to cry mm. because there are so many postures, particularly for me as a woman, because I'm speaking personally, but I look at my husband, by the way, who has a terrible back, but things like Shalabhasana, and they were really critical for your energy and your physically and energetically. And balancing your body from all of those forward bends that you're doing in primary, you know, and our, our back extensors are what actually make us upright human beings. And so when we don't have that strength, it's actually a gluteus maximus that 
holds you upright as a human being. You imagine if you just let that muscle go, you'd tip forward at your hips and you'd end up a quadruped like these little guys. Yeah. So um, to not have strong hip extensors like glute max, um, back extensors is not good for us, especially because we sit on our butts most of the day and they get squashed and they fall asleep and they end up often um, switched off in many people. So I think it's really important. I say to people, if you have been doing Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga for a year and you still haven't started doing any of the any of intermediate then you need to at least be including a whole lot of back bend warm-ups because let's face it Udvadhanarasana is a strenuous back bend like we were just talking about that because somebody was making the argument on instagram i know sorry probably not on there but somebody was saying they were making a joke about when people say that there aren't that many backbends in primary series and they were putting pictures of upward facing dog, Urdhvadanyarasana, um, Setu Bandasana. I, I know, like, and I'm thinking to myself, really? Like, you're, they were being facetious, sarcastic, and saying that aren't those backbends. Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Yes, well, upward dog is a beautiful posture and great counterpose for downward dog but you compare how many still because that means that downward dogs also a forward bend right upward dogs a backward downward dogs a forward bend so that balances out your downward dogs but what about all of those forward bends that you're holding for five breaths there's still not anything close to a balance and yeah i mean i give Backbend warm-ups, it's not that I'm actually starting people on intermediate per se, but I give backbend, a lot of backbend warm-ups in every lead class that I do because I think that you need it. And Udvadhanarasana was actually in which series? Was it Advanced B or Advanced A? And Patabi Joyce took it out of that and put it at the end of every sequence. So it is an advanced backbend. I remember when I started doing yoga, I didn't have the strength to push up into Urvadhanarasana and I was pretty stiff in my shoulders as well. I couldn't do that posture. Whereas I could easily do an upward dog or a shalabhasana or an ostrasana or even a dhanarasana. So all of those first backbends in intermediate are so much easier than Urvadhanarasana. So I think it's appropriate to do some warm-ups before you do Urvadhanarasana. My opinion, you know, and you've got to go with... We like your opinion. What sits true That's why we're here, here when you're teaching. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's go back a little, because I didn't even ask you about your background, how you, how you came to any of this. I went to my first yoga class when I was 18 with my girlfriend, who's still one of my dear besties, and um, we were very bad students, so we, we just hung up in the back of the class and giggled the whole, whole time. So this is like 1978. And 
Um, so look what happens to bad students. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Don't judge your bad students. Anyway, she never went back, and I continued. And I thought it was fairly flexible. I thought it was quite good. I was good at a couple of things, right? And then I did a yoga retreat and met all of these young people who were studying to do a teacher training. And I was like, oh my God, you can actually be young and be a yoga teacher. So I decided to move from my country town to the Big Smoke, which is quite a small smoke in Australia, Adelaide, and become a yoga teacher. The only thing was that I met the woman who was doing the training and even then at 19, I was like, I can't train with you. So I was actually quite, looking back, I'm quite surprised that I was that clear about it. I was like, I can't train with you. So I found another teacher who was an Iyengar-based teacher and I went to his first classes and realised that actually I was pretty stiff. Like I couldn't do Dandasana. That's how tight my hamstrings were. And I was also really weak. So I thought, well, either I do this seriously or I forget about it. And I think I just thought, you know, you shouldn't be this stiff and weak at 19. So I decided to stick with it. I went to every one of his classes. And he was, he is still Hungarian, um, Sándor Remete. And he said to me, if you are serious, be here tomorrow morning, four o'clock. And I was like, okay. But the only problem was I was only used to going to bed at about one o'clock. So <laughs> I didn't sleep that night. And I rode my bicycle um, to the studio and I was exhausted and trained with him every day from four o'clock in the morning until about eight. We would go to his place and have breakfast I would assist him in his class from 10 till 12. We had a break until 3. We would study the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and such things. And then we would do yoga again from 3 till 6. And then I either went to work in the only two vegetarian restaurants in Adelaide at the time, or I would also do his 6 o'clock class. And then next morning we'd start again. So that was my introduction to... (laughs) to yoga and I'm really surprised that I was that focused and dedicated especially because I was really bad at it (laughs) so yeah we did yoga all day long and um, and then eventually I started teaching Um, I actually then moved out to the Adelaide Hills and started teaching a local class there and yeah sort of like always been a strong thread in my life. When did Ashtanga come in? Not until I had been living in Switzerland and then I came back to Australia and thought, wow, where do I want to live? I can live anywhere. So I moved to Byron Bay and I went along to... I had started teaching Iyengar yoga classes and then I went along to my first Ashtanga class and that was it I stopped the next day teaching Iyengar yoga and thought this is it for me I just love this because I always loved to dance you know very freestyle Um, and I started practicing Ashtanga yoga 
And then I lived in Byron just for a year and then ended up moving to Perth and then in 95 did my first trip to Mysore and I met Gregor there. You did, you met him in Mysore. Mm, I met him in Mysore. Who was the teacher in Byron? Uh, the first teacher I had in Byron was Louisa and then I did a few weeks with Dina and then I ended up finding a student of Dina's who had become a teacher and I would just we would just self-practice every morning together. So we'd pay like $2 a week or something to hire this, the Byron Yoga Centre at the time and we'd, they didn't have early morning classes so we'd meet at 6 o'clock every morning and do a practice together. That's how I started. Is it? Yeah, you know, it's just a group of, of friends and who have all gone in different places, teaching in different wow. places, but it was just someone's home who had a home studio and we just started practicing together. You know? Yeah, and we would just help each other where we needed it. Yeah. And yeah it was super informal, but yet Yes. Oh, it, it was informal but it was very serious. Exactly. That yeah, <laughs> it was never <very> serious. <laughs> He was very serious. There was nothing. He was actually harder than most teachers I've been to. Uh, he would keep an eye on me through the corner of his eye because you know I was like the baby beginner, and he was. Um, but the first Ashtanga yoga class I went to, which was with Louisa Sear, um, she just said, "Follow the person in front of you." Well, unfortunately, the person in front of me was doing a full primary with half vinyasas between sides. They may have even been doing full vinyasas between poses. That's what it feel, felt like afterwards. They were doing drop backs. And because I'd done Iyengar yoga for years, I could sort of do everything. But I'd never done it all at once in a sequence where you didn't, you know, really stop. And after the first week, I could not move anything in my body. I was so sore. So, yeah, that was another reason I decided that I might do it differently. Because <laughs> of the pain I had been through <laughs> in my introduction, but yeah, that was how it was done. You know, you just kept going if you could do the next pose, and I could do all the poses, so I just kept going. There's so much that goes into it, isn't it? It's such a—I mean, it is such an intelligent sequence. It does make so much mm. sense, and yet there's there's a lot that the experience will tell you like yes the experience of the teacher will tell you that's right because you know that that's what I was sort of wanting to embark on before and didn't I think I didn't really get there was that the Ashtanga Vinyasa system is a great starting point and it's only an experienced teacher who can actually really gauge whether that person is or isn't it isn't, is or isn't a good thing to modify things for them. And perhaps this is where things are getting lost in translation, that we're, we're trying to adhere to a pretty good form, albeit not perfect, but pretty damn good compared to anything else. Um, and so students probably perceive this and in that don't understand that perhaps the teacher isn't quite as um, dictatorial as it seems, that the system isn't quite as dictatorial as it seems, because it can seem a bit like that, like a real sort of fundamental approach. Well, just like you talked about the body, and you can't just take things, just think about the quadricep mm. muscle by itself, or mm. it's, it's all part of a, a bigger 
system Mm -hmm. and the teacher is certainly part of that and you're part of that and your life Mm -hmm. is part of that and Mm -hmm. I will say that I didn't know that there were options and whether that was because of me yes right because I told you I was Mm. uh, you know very capable I I just thought this is the way you did it options and things like that had never been presented to me so I didn't even know that they were possible yes until I met uh, Christine Hoare and I remember Christine Hoare we were it was really happenstance meeting her and I kind of told her what I was going through we were the same age we're in Costa Rica we were like Megan met her on a surf Megan was out surfing met her (laughs) and said mom I was surfing with this woman she practices Ashtanga yoga you should meet her (laughs) turns out I did and Nancy Gilkoff had had kind of when she was going she had been going you know was going through it Nancy taught her the sequence in a way that kind of chunked things that allowed for some more rest and a slower pace I just didn't even know that that was... I mean, it made sense. It wasn't yes. a completely different sequence. It was the same s- yeah. system. But I it- think also to take some of the um, the focus off of the teacher and look at the student, I think many students love that straight and narrow approach. And many people are probably attracted to Ashtanga Yoga because of that, that they know exactly where to cross their T's and to dot their I's. And there isn't this ambiguity. Mind you, I think that the culture is very much changing. And perhaps it's just that younger people are coming through and and everything, everything is just changing. And so people actually now more want that freedom of a vinyasa flow class where they can just, you know, there's the variety, there's the the less structure. So I think, though, that, you know, certain people are attracted to that and perhaps are wearing their own coloured glasses that slant things. I think there's an element of that in there as well. Oh my gosh, my husband has just started. <laughs> Megan and I can tell you. Well, Megan, because she's been tasked with um, teaching him, but he constantly wants to know, well, what's the right way? What do other people, like, what is the, and he, and he really does, he's yes. really adamant what's about it. What's the exact drishti for this position? Yeah. And, you know, yeah. We, and, and people, I think, a lot of people make up things about, what it is and what it isn't. You know, people will say to me, oh, I heard that you have to do this and that. And, I, and I'll say, well, I've never heard that. Um, I remember, and this is a really classic difference between a Western and a Eastern approach. I was in Mysore and all of these students were discussing, should you raise your arms out to the side or should you raise them up it's in the front? It's still being discussed, oh, yeah. just so you know. Okay, well, <laughs> this is the official word. I mean, Sharat was quite young then. I don't remember how old, although I remember going to his birthday party. I don't remember how old he was turning. And um, someone said, Sharat, should we raise our arms in the front or should we raise them out to the sides? And Sharat just gave that beautiful head wiggle that Indians do. And he said, hmm important you raise your arms <laughs> and I was like yes 
So, you know, I think that there's a, there's a lot of um, superimposing things by the student also. A two-way thing going on here. Well, I'm laughing because Robert Shalabasana was one of those, like, beautiful prep poses for him, and he just lifts his chest. It's kind of more like a, an extension, just an extension of the upper body. Mm-hmm. And he saw me doing it, and I lifted my legs. So he immediately decided he should lift his legs. And why didn't he lift his legs? So Megan said, lift your legs. He said, that hurts my back. She said, that's why you don't lift your legs. <laughs> but, but wait, you would think that would stop him, right? No. 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 He'd rather no. lift his legs than his chest because no. he saw. Yeah, this is why I always say to teachers, you know, you have to demonstrate the way you want people to do it. Because if you... If you you know do it a certain way they're gonna do it try and do it the way you can even if they're not ready for it like that's the nature of the eager student but even those even those mistakes that everybody makes right like me saying i hit a wall like i was one of those people just kept going those end up i mean that was a wonderful teaching experience for myself learning experience for myself right like i learned so much going through that and a lot of it was probably self-inflicted, you know, but a lot of it was just learning. Like, yes. like there wasn't a lot of information yes. or people I could yeah. turn to. Not always easy medicine, but, you know, there's that saying, you get the problem that you need the answer to. If we could all remember that when we've got a problem, it would really help. It's <laughs> really good. Yeah. I just think that sometimes we... We want to form a conclusion so quickly. It frustrates me because I do see a lot out there that is not very favorable with the Ashtanga yoga system that's actually quite quite critical. And they have points, you know, but it's hard to know where those things are. Like, is it like how much of it is me how much of it is culture how much of it is individual teacher like I said I I do travel around and the teachers that I talk to are brilliant in their own ways everybody has like a different language or a different way of bringing it alive but saying the same thing Mm. And then I do see the other side as well, where, I, like I said to you, I've seen students held to positions and places that are Yeah, because, um, so when we lived in Perth, um, and I worked in a clinic as a chiropractor, and so pretty well all of my student uh, patients were yogis. And so, yeah, I heard a lot of stories, not just Ashtanga yoga tradition either, but, um, you know, a lot of unnecessarily forceful adjustments um, where, you know, people had sometimes done irreparable damage, you know, and it's not necessary and it's sad. And I, I do not believe that that was ever the intention of the teacher. But I think sometimes teachers do impose their ideal onto students and not give them enough freedom and autonomy of what actually feels right for them and that's the fine balance between respecting a system 
and seeing the individual there is no perfect recipe for how you can do that I think all teachers myself included sometimes make mistakes in that but it does require you know I think one of the things that is really important is for teachers to be honest with themselves and to try to get as much experience and training before they start teaching you know I think that's an important thing because you know I I know of a lot of teacher trainings that are certified um, yoga alliance certified and yet the teacher themselves has only done a 200 hour training and no training is going to be perfect and cover anything but you want to at least have done you know at least 500 hours of formal training and have at least five years of experience under your belt surely that should be like a bare minimum but even life experience sometimes like I'm kind of mortified at how I was 10 years ago you Mm. know I mean I just told you I was tough so if I was tough on me I'm sure yes I was tough period yes that's what we do I didn't learn a softer side. Don't make a face. Just making a face. I didn't anybody like. I know, and people can't see it, but <laughs> it's, but not joking, really. That softer side, that that willingness to be vulnerable, and uh, even Patabi Joyce obviously became a lot softer as he got older, and Krishnamacharya as well was a tyrant. You know, I had somebody say on on some Facebook response. How can you um, say that you um, practice in the tradition of Krishnamacharya? He was terrible and hurt his students and so on and so on. I guess it was a different time and different standards. And I never got to experience him personally. But there was also a lot of wisdom in what he taught. You just can't ever chuck out the whole thing. You know, people are much more complicated than that. Well, speaking of Facebook, that is what makes me always nervous is because everything is so much more complex. Like I'm always, I'm afraid to put up a picture. I'm afraid, you know, anything can get taken out of context. And there's so many real perspectives, even within one experience Mm. um I just I'm just like you know we're really hesitant we really look at everything that we put up on an Instagram account how could it be looked at this way and sometimes you'll use a word that maybe maybe it needed to be more evolved I don't know but it it, it's a little scary right now because Mm. we seem to be really quick to want to jump on yes you know Krishnamacharya was all bad he was all a tyrant Mm. or you know catching in a back bend is all bad and can hurt or there there's just so many things or or the opposite you know this person is all good and like do you know what I mean yes yes I do and I think that this is one of the the biggest deficiencies that can often um front itself in places like Facebook where people don't have to be responsible for what they're writing to a degree that they don't have to actually really face somebody mm-hmm. You know, and so I think that the big deficiency there is kindness. You know, 
Because if you are really strong, then you can be kind. And it's, it, it's when people are often being really harsh and unkind on Facebook that you can actually perceive that they feel insecure, you know, in some way. And, yeah, Facebook can be quite easy for people, even though there's the little icon of their face. You know, that's a far cry from having to be in front of that other person and then deliver what it is that you might deliver. And I think if you can't do that, then you shouldn't write it. Yeah. You know, you should be able to imagine that you could do that to that person and say that to them. So, yeah, this can be one of the downfalls. It's a great way of communicating and, you know, we're so fortunate in that way that the world has become a small place for us to be able to all keep in touch. Uh, we do need to exercise more caution. on the, More caution, I think, on the kindness side, you know. It's those opposing forces, those two extremes. I started off telling you a little bit about Ashtanga Dispatch and how mm. it reaches these really small corners of the world and I'm, I'm like amazed and just grateful that we're able to bring something that's worthwhile and that you know students that could never access would never get to sit in your beautiful home and, like, and be a part of this conversation they are a part of it wherever they are when they listen and that's really amazing that is amazing yeah that's great work that you do and on the other hand, scares the crap out of me. <laughs> yeah, I understand that heaviness of that responsibility, and I'm sure you've, you know, experienced the, the hard side of that sometimes. Well, maybe circling back to what you were saying, I think this has been a time where I've decided I'm going to do it anyway. Mm. Right? And that's what yeah. I think I see from you is that you've been, your voice has been really clear and out there and strong mm. and mm. lovely and got my attention mm. got Megan's attention she had to listen to me last year lecturing anatomy <laughs> <laughs> she brought back her notes that's true. speaking of which let's circle back to that some of those notes Oh, that's right. You were curious yeah, about I a few was. things I had to say. You were. You. She wrote down a few notes. She said, "Mom, you have to see what Monica wrote." And well, by I, the way, my anatomy is sort of not straight anatomy that I lecture, and it's because um, I'm not only a chiropractor, but I practice a lot of low force techniques. So I'm very unusual in that I'd never crack people. You know, everyone thinks that chiropractors crack. So I'm a low-force chiropractor. That's just mainly because that's how I like to be treated. Um, and so the beauty of those systems, and it's the same with osteopathy, um, is that there's it's almost in that ability to be a little subtler and quieter, which is, I think, also what we need to translate to our own work with our own bodies, is that there's so many amazing things that... Um, people now know about the body and the way that it functions. So I probably bring a lot of that into my lectures on anatomy as well. Well, that was probably good because I think Megan and I can both admit that we're not huge on 
Anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> so the fact that she took notes, found it interesting, and brought it home would be a testament to how you were teaching. Oh, that's good. She um, said, "Wow, you know, I hate anatomy." Well, look. <laughs> Sorry, my rat meow. That's okay. I understand. It's not everyone's subject. I don't know why I'm a bit of an anatomy nerd, but. I think it's just because when you look into the human body and you start to see the way it functions, you just go, man, this is a miracle. And that's what I call my anatomy. Know your miracle. Because it, it's, it's ridiculous. And we'll never actually understand the human body. We've come a long way and people keep trying, but we'll never be able to because it is magnificent. It's just, it's a miracle. So, yeah, I remember you were asking about um, the suboccipital muscles. Oh, yeah, you, you, that was a great word. I know I didn't use it, but... Oh, sorry, what <laughs> no, did you say? but that's, I just said that, that using your eyes... Oh, okay. ...does something with the back of the head. <laughs> I took better notes on that. <laughs> I'm sure you did, Megan. Explain this, because it was fascinating. We've been sticking our hand, our fingers in the back, on the base of our yeah, skull and you, like moving our eyes around. And, and you can feel the those muscles at the base of your skull, which are called your, your sub, because below occipitals, that's the, the occiput, that base of the skull. So those suboccipital muscles actually fire up when you move your eyes only and it's because of the fact that they it's like muscles are not all the same muscles are very different they're like different characters and they have different characteristics so if you compare your suboccipitals have somewhere between 30 to 36 muscle spindle cells per muscle fiber, right? Whereas you compare that to your glute max, which we're sitting on, and it has less than one. So these have like 30 to 36, depending on exactly which one we're talking about. And those muscle spindles are actually like little sensory nerves that tell your brain where you are in space and how fast they need to contract, protect you from stretches, you know, they, they're like little sensory cells, yeah? And those muscles, you know, we're talking about connective tissue and fascia. Well, the connective tissue that wraps around those muscles actually connects to the connective tissue that wraps around your spinal cord at your neck. So those guys are listening really closely and they're relaying messages really fast. So even when you move your eyes, they're already ready in case you see that saber-toothed tiger that you have to run away from. Yeah. So you know that's why we can actually move our head quite what we can yeah, that coordination between the eyes and the ability to move your head and neck so that you can see danger is very closely wired, very sensitive. So, yeah. Does that explain? Which was kind of fascinating because I think we always think about drishti as just being mind, right? Mm. It's just yes. like everybody says, well, that's the mind component, you know, focus your mind. But yet, it's one of those places where I find playing with the drishti a little is 
helps me so it helps me get another perspective but a physiological yeah well even. wherever you move your eyes your body is going to want to move in that direction so it does help hence the driving yeah <laughs> <laughs> yes so you know if you're doing a twist and you're looking to the right then that is going to aid it's going to prep your whole body and neck to be able to rotate to the right it's just a much more harmonious way of doing it and sometimes people will temper the action intentionally for example I remember um, Richard Freeman always taught when you took your head back in a back bend to gaze down to the tip of your nose right in order to not hyper extend your head on your neck and that's exactly the place I was going to ask you about because mm. that's a real common that was kind of switched to upward dog, for mm, example. Upward your dog, yes. And quite a few of the backbends, the drishti is gazing down. And that's actually to temper that effect because it is there. But how amazing that yogis knew that. I mean, besides the obvious necessary interoreceptive thing that the drishti gives you that when you fix your eyes and you're not being distracted you know it's a pratyahara technique really isn't it mm-hmm. because it it does help us to be more inward and, and reflective and observant of where our body is and what we're doing keeps quiet in the mind mm-hmm. do you think it's good to also exercise the eyes yes it- definitely mm. Yeah, and this is one of the reasons I love living in the country because, you know, looking far away is a relaxation for your eye muscles. So actually that reminds me, those suboccipital muscles have about the same proportion of muscle spindle cells as your eye muscles, which we know that they're very adaptable. And so that's why it's really... Like when you look at something that's a long way away, that actually relaxes the eye muscles. So it's actually very relaxing for our eyes to look out at a view, not only at our computer screen. (laughs) I was just thinking about it driving. I've been telling Megan, it's really hard for me because I am trying to figure out where I am on the side of the road and I keep looking to the left in that left view mirror and this right and making sure I'm in the middle. Mm. And it's it's making me anxious <laughs> and I'm like I, at home you can just kind of look straight ahead and kind of see the whole thing and I'm just like looking back and forth yeah and stiff it is disconcerting to be driving on the other side of the road but no you did it. That, that was that's really neat that was really neat stuff you also you also said something about shoulder injuries in women during it's not so much shoulder injuries alone but it's it's all injuries that it was back to that collagen thing that we were talking about so yeah it's a sad truth and I don't even like to admit it myself because I would like it to be otherwise but um, we do have less resilience as we age you mentioned something. Oh, sorry, and I would I'll just interrupt you there. The reason it is particularly women is because of the hormonal fluctuations. So yes, unfortunately, those hormones. But you know, they're they're actually now starting to recognise a condition called menopause. 
which I love the name that it fits so <laughs> succinctly into. Is it what I think it is? Menopause. Well, you know, men's hormones also do change. And the fact of the matter is that our whole um, society at the moment is becoming less and less virile. And they're recognising that it's a number of factors. It's not just our the toxic planet that we're creating, but it's also stress levels and, you know, probably um, a gradual genetic decline that's happening. Um, but, yeah, men now are... I don't remember the statistics exactly, but there's a strong decline in fertility, in in sperm count, in males that's happening. It's probably similar in female, I'm not sure quite sure why the article I was reading. So you know it's sort of like medical journal type information. It's not just um, a Google search. <laughs> well I think mentally, physically there's a lot thrown at everyone. So if you have all of that going on for a number of years for yeah. I would it it's going to take its toll on everyone. Yes, it is taking its toll on everyone. I know the whole world has become so fast that we're literally starting to spin out of control. Well, how do you not well, I'm looking it's hard for me to ask you this, but I'm thinking you and Gregor both have uh, a pretty busy life. We have a full life, definitely. <laughs> definitely, we have a full life. And, yeah, I think part of my sanity is to live here, to come home to huge trees that stay in one spot and don't move. And just looking at all of those mountains that, you know, are so stable and grounded and content that's why I just love that (laughs) and I think you know having vast skies to look at is really important for human beings and a lot of greenery we've lost we've really lost that connection with nature and I think it's a little bit of a reflection of the connection that we're losing not just with ourselves which is important enough but with the whole planet, each other, you know, like even what you were talking about on Facebook, like I think it's easy to be less compassionate and understanding when there's distance. I have a Facebook group, now I'm telling you, like, scared of Facebook, but I have a Facebook group that's a women's practice focus group that's just for women, and it was something that I kind of felt compelled to create as a way for women to create community and a place to be supported and to speak and to ask questions Mm -hmm. um, that wasn't for the general public and the way I keep it so that it it stays a safe place is that you have to fill out a survey to be invited in so that way Mm -hmm. I can keep it somewhat contained but it's open to anyone that is willing to share a bit of themselves but one, one of the questions on the survey is how how satisfied are you with um, 
how much time in nature you spend, right? So there's a lot of things. There's a lot of questions on there, like your support system, um, the practice. But one of them is that connection with nature, and it is the one question on the survey that is really low. Wow. For mo- for nearly, yeah. I mean, there's very. It's very rare that I have a woman that answers and says very satisfied I get out you know like uh, (laughs) it's usually not enough or Mm. not at all Um, Mm. do you think that's there's a connection there also with yeah I I I think that we it has been undervalued it is undervalued you know because even to go for a walk in nature is now they've actually been able to prove that it actually increases your creativity. You know, just a 10-minute walk in nature. And I think that nature has always been our great teacher and we've sort of, you know, we're pretty well just ignoring her at the moment to the extent of being abusive. You know, that disconnect allows us to do that um, you know, one of the things that I like to present in my anatomy is the fact that we are, we are actually made up of the elements, the different elements that exist here on our earth yeah, and in our universe. And, you know, like when someone new is born, the earth doesn't get heavier. And when someone dies, the earth doesn't get lighter. And it's because it's just those same elements that are just being recycled. And I think that if we could really understand that we are the earth, then we would start to, if everyone could, we would be able to make the changes that are necessary to save the planet. But while there are enough of us that have that disconnect, it's not going to happen. No, we're going to head towards destruction. Which now just makes me want to, to go. S- <laughs> well, I, I was going to say go sit out on your deck and overlook the mountains <laughs> and then cry. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're so welcome. You're so welcome. I hope that some of what I've said is helpful to somebody. I think so much of what you said. I'm so grateful that you're putting your voice out there and that, you know, that we were even able to make this drive up. Thank you for inviting well, us into you your home. thank you for home. asking me. Um, yeah, you know, I can be quite private and tend not to self-promote just because I can't be bothered, actually. And maybe that's an age thing as well. But <laughs> I just, you know, I don't have an Instagram account. I don't want an Instagram account. I can't keep up with Facebook, you know. <laughs> um, but a lot of it is because of the fact that I feel content with what I'm doing and I feel that the people I reach are the people who are meant to hear from me. And the rest is fine, you know. I don't need to reach everybody. And it actually really, I feel a lot of, um, I feel some sadness when I see people struggling to promote themselves on Facebook, Instagram, because 
I feel a lot of it's born of a desire to be seen and to be successful and so on, but it's so hard for people now with so much competition, you know? So, yeah, I think we all need to learn to trust a little more in that what's happening is okay. It's what's meant to be happening because that's the big thing that I realise because anxiety has become so prevalent in our society and anxiety comes because we aren't trusting and I know it's a scary thing to trust but there is actually one thing in our lives that we can trust and it's in our own heart so you can't get closer and more intimate than that You don't have to trust everything out in the world, but you need to be able to connect inside and learn to trust your heart. And that's one of the beauties of age, is that you become so much more secure in that. (laughs) I was just going to bring you back there. I thought that's something that you always hear, but you almost need the time to... feel it and see that natural slowing down gives you the time even if you sort of still try to keep up with certain things Um, but it does it does give you the time even if you're not recognising it it's in that slowing down because the time's still there (laughs) you just don't do as much in the same amount of time so yeah The Ashanga Dispatch podcast is made possible by listeners like you who support the show. Because we do not accept sponsors or interrupt the show with ads, your support in any amount really helps. Visit ashangadispatch.com to donate. We really do appreciate your help. You can listen to a new episode of the Ashanga Dispatch podcast every month. Just subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you like to download your podcasts. There's also a link on our website to sign up for our email list, so you can be the first to know about any new episodes. Visit ashangadispatch.com. The Ashanga Dispatch podcast is edited, hosted, and produced by my mom, Peg Queen, along with me, Megan Powell. Thanks for listening.